If you brought a Bible, I encourage you now to open it to the book of Hosea. And if you don't quite know where that is, go to the book of Daniel and take a right. The book that follows Daniel is Hosea. And today we are in chapter 1, and we will be looking at verses 2 through 9 as we are going to see the harlotry of Israel and the jealousy of Yahweh exploding in a crisis that occurred in the 8th century. During the Northern Kingdom's autumn of prosperity and then their final spasms of self-destructive, the prophet of Hosea was called to alert the people to the true reason for their national decline. It was not ultimately a failure of political maneuvering, military power, or financial resources. The explanation lay deep within the covenant people themselves. Israel was an unfaithful wife, sharing her love with both Yahweh and the Baals, and her lawful husband could no longer support her affairs with other lovers through further manifestations of his mercy. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in verse 2 of chapter 1 of the book of Hosea. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She, that is Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned, no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do ask now that the Holy Spirit, who breathed out and inspired this word, may enable us to hear it. Take away the defenses we all have, and we pray that we would, would with an open face behold your glory as we hear this word today. And though we may hear unpleasant things, and we certainly will, we pray that you would give us the courage to look at ourselves and see what you see. And we pray that as this word goes out, it will not return to you empty or void,
but it will prosper where you send it and that it will accomplish your purposes. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And so here we are in the book of Hosea, and what we're running into is a real live story. This is not a parable. This is not an allegory. This is a real person named Hosea in the 8th century whom Yahweh, the God of Israel, comes to and commands him to take a wife of a promiscuous reputation and bear children of a promiscuous reputation to a land of a promiscuous reputation, well-earned. And so this is a story that's almost like, and I don't know any other way to put it, it's a gut punch. It's like just full force. God is going to show us something about himself in this book that not many of us know, and that, and that is this. He is a very jealous God. He is righteously jealous, but he's jealous. Let's talk a little bit about what we mean by the jealousy of God. Nobody would ever imagine a jealous God, and yet J.I. Packer, in knowing God, says God reveals himself as a jealous God. He goes so far as to give his name itself as jealous in Exodus 34, 14. So what is the nature of this divine jealousy, and how can jealousy be a virtue in God when it's usually a vice in human beings? How do we give God praise for being jealous? First, understand that his jealousy is the kind that zealously protects a love relationship which avenges it when it is broken, uh, similar uh, to a husband being jealous of his wife. So when God tells us he is jealous, he means that he demands from those he has loved and redeemed utter and absolute loyalty and will vindicate his claim by stern action. If they betray his love by unfaithfulness, he himself will brook no rivals. He is jealous for us because he loves us. And that is encouraging to know that he is so jealous for me and of me, he will not let me go without coming after me. And so that is one of the beautiful things we're going to see about God, but we're also going to see other things. And so what's going on in the book of Hosea is what uh, theologians call an enacted prophecy. And it's a genre, a type of literature, and Hosea's, Hosea's account issues from divine, divine directives, but the basic prophetic reason for the command is contained in the explanations explicit to the commands. Hosea is to act in God's place as well as to speak for him. Like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Hosea himself will be a sign to the people, signifying a reality. He is a prophetic symbol of God's wrath in judgment and his love in restoration. What you're going to see in this book of Hosea is God threaten and bring down judgment upon his people that would literally make us shake in our boots. 
And so the, this book is full of judgment, which none of us like to think about. On the other hand, it's also full of hope and restoration. But it's like an oscillating fan. My grandmother used to have one when I was a little boy. And the fan would blow over here a while, then it'd slowly move over here and blow over here. And I found myself just following the fan back and forth because it was so hot in her house out in the country, you know, and they didn't have air conditioning, but it was an oscillating fan. In the book of Hosea, you're going to see the oscillation between judgment. God declares to his people three things. You people are bloodshed. You people are not my people. You people will receive no more mercy. Boy, that's judgment. That's bad. That's as bad as it gets. That's hell. That's what that is. And yet, if you keep on reading, which we will next week, you'll get wonderful hope of restoration. And so God is a God who brings both judgment and restoration. But we don't want to undersell and fail to acknowledge and fail to see and fail to have in our theology an understanding of the judgment of God. And so God called Hosea not only to speak to the nation, but also to serve as a living symbol of the larger spiritual reality of Yahweh's love for his promiscuous wife, Israel. By this means, the truth of their violations of the covenant was made visibly literal before them. And such a bold demonstration was necessary because the people themselves could not see it. They could not see into their own hearts that they had departed from Yahweh. Even Hosea in chapter 8 verse 2 says, To me they cry, cry, My God, we Israel know you. And the pressing issue of the day in their eyes was not how to regain the favor of an offended husband, but how to stabilize a politically volatile situation to the east. Assyria was flexing its muscles, and it seemed that an alliance with Egypt to the west might show up, shore up their weak position against the eastern aggressor. But the nations also sought to appease the Assyrians by paying them off tribute. So foreign policy vacillated between defiance and appeasement. And from its beginning, Hosea's prophetic ministry was shaped by the theme of Israel's whoredom as they pursued other gods and departed from strict faithfulness to Yahweh. The northern kingdom, Yahweh chargers, has become nothing more than a brothel. We know what that word means around here, don't we? It's not a matter of isolated aberration here and there. Nationwide, the people have lapsed into egregious violations of their covenant with Yahweh, such that the generalization of verse 2 demands to be made. This ugly, shocking accusation is to be made clearly evident to the people through Hosea's own heartache as a husband married to an adulterous woman. He must deliberately choose her for his wife, someone that he knows going in is going to be unfaithful to him, and accept children who more than likely, two of them, are not his own. Three declarations of judgment in verses 3 through 9 flow out of and must be interpreted in connection with the charge in verse 2 that the land commits great harlotry. 
The first word is sounded in verses 3 through 5. He went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will visit the bloodshed of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of the Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, before I expound what that means, some of you may be in shock that God would call Hosea to do something like this. Let me remind you that the book of Isaiah says, God's ways are not as what? Our ways. His thoughts are not like what? Our thoughts. He transcends us. He's eternal. He's the creator. We're the creature. He's God. We're not. He's sovereign. That God would call a man, a prophet, probably around 20 years old, Hosea, to go and do this upsets the apple cart of some people's theology really, really badly. I mean, people get upset over this. And I read all the arguments out there, and I'm convinced that it means exactly what it says. And here's why. I got this from James Boyce. And he says, there's a question often raised in the introduction to Hosea that bears upon the application of the story to the church and is therefore worth mentioning. It has been objected by some, no less than John Calvin, that it is utterly unconceivable that God would ever ask one of his children, Hosea, to marry a woman who may have already been promiscuous and would ultimately prove to be unfaithful to him in every way. They believe the story must not be read as a real story. Rather, it's just an allegory, like some people think Jonah is. Some people think the prodigal son is. They're all real. They're real people. How do we know? Because Jesus talked about them, and he doesn't talk about allegory. Apart from the fact that the story of Hosea's marriage is told as a real story and rings true, we must say this, that sometimes God leads his children into situations that are parallel, if not identical, to this. We live in an age where everything good is interpreted in terms of happiness and success and personal growth. So when we think of a spiritual blessing, we always think of it in these terms. To be led of God and be blessed by God means that we will all be healthy, happy, successful, and wise. In fact, if a Christian does appear to be happy and successful, there are scores of people who will be ready, like Job's counselors, to work with him to see what's wrong. But... If a Christian does not appear to be happy or successful, Job's counselors show up. But uh, was Jesus happy? Well, he was undoubtedly at times filled with joy and all the other fruits of the Spirit, but he was also called a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Was Jesus successful? Not at all by our standards or by any standards that might be applied to him by anyone living at that time. So let's pull down as a great principle, or put this down as a great principle. God sometimes leads his children to do things that afterward involves them in great distress. But because God does not think as we think, nor act as we act, it is often in these situations that he accomplishes his greatest victories and brings the greatest blessings to his name. There it is. The mystery where we silently bow down. 
The greatest example of that is the cross. Why would God ordain and preordain, and why would God uh, predestinate the cross of Jesus Christ? It's the most heinous, evil, wicked thing that would ever be done. Why would God do that? Thank God he did. Because the greatest redemption that will ever be known to the universe occurred through it. God works in our lives in mysterious ways. If God allows tragedy to slip into a life, this does not necessarily mean that you are out of his will when you married that husband or you married that wife or you took that job or you made that commitment. He may be giving you a chance to show the love and character of Christ as you live in your situation. Again, you may be able to learn something of God's love for you through a difficulty. For what is the story of Hosea if it is not a story of ourselves as members of the body, which is the bride of Christ? We are Gomer, and God is Hosea. He married us when we were unclean. He knew that we would prove unfaithful again and again and again, and he knew that we would forsake him. Still he loved us and purchased us to himself through the atonement of Christ. And if Hosea's story cannot be real because God could not ask a man to marry an unfaithful woman, then neither is the story of salvation real because that is precisely what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has purchased us for himself. People of wicked reputation to be a bride without any stain or wrinkle or blemish but holy and blameless and he has done this even though he knew in advance we would prove often faithless so we don't want to get too high and mighty <laughs> about being upset with God because he asked somebody to marry a prostitute or commanded that they do so so let's get into and exegete just a little bit some of the verses before us. And I want to jump right into uh, the child called bloodshed. Wouldn't it be something to have a little boy and you walk around with him holding him? Somebody says, oh, you have a son. What's his name? You know, back in the, we call it Bible times. People usually named their children something pleasant, something you could tell people. And they would go, yeah, that's great. But you would hold a little baby and say, what's his name? Bloodshed. That's my boy, Jezreel. Now, I'm going to shorten this for you because I don't have all day and you don't either. But Jezreel is a valley in the northern kingdom. And it's a valley in which a lot of things happen. You've read the story of Gideon. That happened in Jezreel. You've read the story of Jehu and chopping up Ahab and 62 of his descendants cut their heads off and put them at the city gate that happened in Jezreel Jezreel was a valley and it was a valley that could be fertile and could be the best place in the world for Israel to prosper and grow crops and it was a transportation lane between the north and Egypt to the south and Assyria to the uh, east and so it was perfectly situated but this is a place where lots and lots of people were killed and he tells the prophet to name his son Jezreel, which means scatters or sows. And we'll see next week it can mean something positive as well as something negative. But he calls his son Jezreel. And that's quite a name. Hosea's obedience was complete. 
And so she conceived and bore him a son. And the first child we know from Scripture clearly is Hosea's. And she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and Gomer had another son. So Hosea is not mentioned in the last two. Maybe they were not his children. Maybe they were children of whoredom. It's not possible to be sure. Hosea and Gomer had had a son, and God told him to call him Jezreel. And and God explains, I will bring bloodshed, uh, the bloodshed of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. Jezreel was the name of the vineyard owned by Naboth that was stolen by King Ahab, who was married to that wicked queen, Jezebel. Jehu was the man whom God used to judge Ahab. And it is likely that the house of Jehu represents the house of Israel as a whole. But if the crime was Ahab's, why uh, not use the house of Ahab to represent Israel rather than the man who deposed him? So the reference to Jezreel must be more than a reference to the crime of Ahab. Jezreel was also the place where Jehu had massacred the family of Ahab when he took power. Is this what God had in mind? The problem is that Jehu replaced Ahab at God's behest. And it could be that Jehu's house is judged because even though he defeated Ahab as God commanded, he did so with excessive cruelty. Perhaps the Bible uh, does not say this. Indeed, at that time, God commended Jehu. But it is true that God ordered Jehu to defeat Ahab to reestablish pure religion in Israel. Now, you've got to understand something about the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom, and they had two worship centers, one at Dan and one at Bethel. And guess what was at each worship center? A golden calf. Now, these people in Israel were not out and out defying and denying Yahweh. They were just simply incorporating the religion of the time in and mixing it together with Yahwehism. And they worshiped the Baals. And the Baals were the gods of fertility. And so if you wanted to have a happy, successful, prosperous life, You basically sold Yahweh, you put him in your back pocket, and you went and worshipped Baal. So there was this disloyalty, this adultery, spiritual adultery in the hearts of his people. And so even though uh, Jehu did what he was ordered, his reform did not turn out so well. And so God has promised to bring the kind of bloodshed for which Jezreel is known, not just on the house of Ahab, but on the house of Israel as a whole. So what God is saying to his people, you think it was bad when Jehu went and removed Ahab from the throne and took his 62 descendants and cut their heads off and put them out for everyone to see? You think that's bad? That's nothing compared to the judgment that will come to you ultimately through Assyria in 722 B.C. So he's threatening here judgment. He even says the whole political of Israel 
entity of Israel will be brought down. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. A bow is always a symbol of military strength. So breaking the bow is a metaphor for God's protection against the bows of Israel's enemy. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God promises, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. But now, it is not the bow of Israel's enemies that he destroys. Instead, it is the bow of Israel herself. She will not be left, or she will be left defenseless. Now it will be the place of Israel's fall. God was saying, in effect, I'm going to destroy the political system of Israel and break its military power in the valley of Jezreel. Actually, Jezreel is a wordplay or a pun. Pronounced in Hebrew, listen to these two words. Yes, Jezreel, and this word, Israel. Yezreel, Israel. And so God is saying the house of Jezreel is the ten tribes of the north, Israel. It would be akin to God saying to us, you're not a reformed church, you're a deformed church. And that's exactly what happens here. Now, Hosea and Gomer have a second child, trying to get you to listen faster. And this child is called unloved. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a baby? People come up and say, what's her name? And you just say, well, this is unloved. What a terrible name. Literally, it means no mercy. Lo ruhamah, which means no mercy or unloved. And imagine how that worked out on the playground. Um, there, there, there's unloved. See that girl? She's unloved. A beautiful little girl called unloved. A beautiful little girl with a forlorn look in her eyes. And every time somebody calls their name, they declare that she is unloved. The word literally means no compassion, no mercy. God will have no more mercy on Israel. It is an expression of the power of God's opposition to spiritual adultery. This is his jealousy. He withholds his mercy. John Calvin, who I dissed earlier by saying that he missed the point, I'm going to give him a little boost. He prayed this prayer uh, responding to this text. Grant Almighty God that as we were from our beginning lost, you were pleased to extend to us your hand and to restore us to the salvation for the sake of your son. And that as we continue even daily to run headlong into our own ruin, O oh, grant that we may not by sinning so often provoke at length your displeasure as to cause you to take away from us the mercy which you have hitherto exercised toward us and through which you have adopted us but by your spirit destroy the wickedness of our heart and restore to us a sound mind that we may ever cleave to you with a true and sincere heart that being fortified by your defense we may continue safe amidst all kinds of danger until at length you gather us into our blessed rest which has been prepared for us in heaven by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's a good prayer. But think about it for a moment. 
The southern kingdom of Judah is different. Yet I will show love to Judah, said God, and I will save them, not by bow, not by sword of battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. The bow cannot save Israel because God will break the bow. In verse 7, the bow cannot save Judah or any other piece of military equipment. But God can save them, and what matters is not our military hardware, but the mercy of God. What protects us in our power or wealth or abilities is only the mercy of God. In fact, God's judgment against Israel may be more ambiguous. For verse 6 literally reads, For I will uh, no more have mercy on the house of Israel, and I shall completely forgive them. But the ESV says of the same thing in Hosea. He said, I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. That's the wrong place. When she was weaned, no mercy, uh, oh, that's the last one, where is it? Oh, it's the end of verse 6. For I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. There's a little dispute over what that phrase is, but that's exactly what it is. He will give them no forgiveness at all. And it's jolting to us. A moment when God will come when God will both execute judgment without mercy and offer mercy without judgment. And that moment happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. He experiences the full wrath of God and his children are peop and people are utterly and completely forgiven. But here God tells his people, there's no forgiveness for you. No forgiveness. And then a third child is born. And this child is called Not My People. Now, this is a little boy. You're carrying him around in the marketplace. Somebody comes up, says, oh, you have a new son. What's his name? Not my boy. That's who this is. Not my boy. That had to be humiliating for poor Hosea. Not my boy. Somebody else. Not mine. That's what God is saying to his people. That is the ultimate heart of the covenant. What you see in Hosea chapter 1 are the curses of the covenant coming down on the covenant people because of their violation of their responsibility in the covenant to keep God's law. And these people have for so long rebelled in the face of God and were so hardened to it and were so insensitive to it that God has to call a prophet to live out the reality of his heart toward them and their heart toward him in the person of Hosea, his wife, and his children. And it's ugly. And it's supposed to be ugly because it is ugly. Sinning against such grace. Hosea and Gomer had a third child. They called him not my people or not my son. And so he had low rumah, no mercy or unloved, and not my boy. And God uh, told Hosea to call him low ami because you are not my people and I am not your God. That's the covenant slogan. That's the heart of the covenant. You find it from Genesis to Revelation. I will be your God. You will be my people. And now God says as much as this. 
I'm, I'm going to divorce you. That's what God is saying. I'm going to divorce you. You are nothing but an unfaithful harlot. You, my people, are an unfaithful harlot, and I'm going to divorce you. I'll let that sink in. God had promised to Moses years before, you shall be my people, I shall be your God. God had promised, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. This is the promise or the refrain at heart of the biblical narrative and story. But not anymore, not for the people of Israel. Now the promise goes into reverse. You are not my people and I am not your God. The great I am who had covenanted to be with his people and for his people will no longer be with them or for them. The Lord whose presence marked them out as his special people abandons his people, leaving them as a pagan nation. They are alone with a superpower army bearing down on them. Imagine a child walking with her father and they're approached by an angry dog. Imagine her turning around to find her father is nowhere to be found. He has gone. And imagine him saying as he runs away you are not my child I am not your father that is what you have in Hosea chapter 1 that's what you've got so that's what happened and a few years later after about six kings in a matter of three years it happened the Assyrian army came crashing down on the kingdom of Israel and wiped it off the map. Israel was removed from the pages of history. The capital of Samaria, Samaria was completely destroyed. The nation disappeared. All that remained were a few people mixed with other nations practicing a half-remembered Christic version of their religion, the people who would later be called in the New Testament the Samaritans. That's where they came from. And they were looked at with an upturned nose. Why the weird names? Why blight the lives of these children in this way? Because God wanted to shake his people out of their infidelity before it was too late. I don't think it, humanly speaking, you can say this. It's probably not exactly accurate, but humanly speaking, there is a time when God's patience reaches its end with his people. All these threats of judgment we see the prophets given are conditional. They're conditioned upon the people hearing the threat and responding in repentance and returning to the Lord. But if the people don't respond in repentance and don't return to the Lord, then judgment comes. And it is crushing. It is crushing. And so Assyria completely wiped them off the map. But God wanted to shake his people. He could have come without warning. Or he could have made do with Hosea just going around and preaching sermons. But he went further. He embodied his message in the names of Hosea, his family, to convey them. Uh, and now his call to return before it's too late. In the marriage from which the children came, the guilt of faithless Israel lived before their very eyes. The children with these particular names forced the people to hear the word of Yahweh since... 
They raise questions that elicit from the prophet. And again, these words have been divinely entrusted to him. And so what do we do with this? What do we in 2019 do with this passage? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. There are things we need to think of. First of all, for the Christian, you may not have run so far from God as Gomer ran from Hosea. You may not have been so unfaithful as to deny him and seek other gods, committing a spiritual adultery with them, but you have certainly flirted with other gods, and you have certainly entertained idols in your own heart. Things like power and pleasure and comfort and prosperity, all of these have become the focus of your heart. They become your reason for being. And yeah, you love Jesus, and he's in your back pocket over here, and you'll call on him when you need him, but you look at, his, at your life day to day, and there's no sign of, of a, a bride loving a bridegroom. There's not there. It's not there in your heart, in your life. It's not there. And you better wake up. You have taken the overpowering love of your great bridegroom and lover, Jesus Christ, with less obedience and respect than he deserves. You've been half-hearted in your love. You've given God a tip in the offering plate on Sunday mornings, and you've allowed his name to pass your lips lightly. And you say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, while actually you live for yourself and you're caught up in the world, and nobody would ever know it by looking at you. You've had a chance to show what it really means and what an honor it is to be the bride of Christ, but you have disgraced that name in small ways, if not in large ones, and you know that you are scarcely the stainless, wrinkle-free, holy and blameless bride he deserves. If this is the case, learn what it means to be Christ's bride. Learn what a horror spiritual adultery is and flee from it and run to Jesus and lie in his arms and tell him of your love and do not continue in disobedience allowing little infidelities to become those great spiritual adulteries. That will bring chastisement in your life. God doesn't punish us for our sins because he punished his son for our sins, but he does chastise us, not as a judge, but as a father, and he will bring chastisement upon you if you continue as a believer in rebellion against him, which is the ultimate church discipline. He will do it. He's jealous. He loves you too much to let you go. Now, there's encouragement here for those of you who may not yet be a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, if you've never known a love like this, the, this, this is what's so encouraging me about this chapter, is this chapter is revealing to us the heart of God. And as much as we can say with anthropopathisms, that is, giving God feelings like we feel, it is as if God is wounded by what his wife has done. It is, it is as if there's humiliation. Oh, such love to put up with that so long. And if you're not a Christian, you've never known a love like this because you've never experienced a love like this. You may be wondering if there really is love like this. You may be even wondering if it's possible for someone like you to be loved by God in this way. And if this is your case, you should know that what you feel of your own inadequacies is true of all of us who are brought into God's family.
We were all in fellowship with God once in Adam. Since then, we've all gone our own way. We may be described as scattered, not pitied, not God's people. It is people like that for whom Christ died. And if you are touched by a story and sense that Christ died for you, then do not let the thoughts of your own inadequacies and past sins hold you back. They qualify you for him. Run to him. Believe in him. Know yourself that Christ's love is as this story speaks. Finally, the Apostle Peter was one who originally understood little of God's love for others, particularly for those who were not Jews. But he came to know this love through Jesus Christ, and we see this in the first of his New Testament letters written as he says to God's elect, scattered, where have we heard that before, Jezreel, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, these were not special people, but they were called to faith in Christ. Now their case is different. Thus Peter writes in clear reference to the story of Hosea. Listen carefully. Once you were not a people to the Gentiles, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. That is the story. That is the story of all who have ever been saved. Scattered, not pitied, not my people, now, because of faith in Christ, planted, pitied the people of God. You choose as God enables. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prophet's words. They sting and they hurt and they're not fun and they're not pleasant. And we don't sing kumbaya sitting in a circle when we hear the indictment of the prophet Hosea. Not only in word but through a living picture. Such a graphic, vivid illustration of God's jealousy toward his covenant people. And Lord, I pray if we need to repent today, we will repent. We will return. We will give our hearts totally to you and recognize that you have soul occupancy of the throne of our souls. You are our God, and we are your people. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. May we worship by giving as we have heard the good news of your mercy in Christ. The good news of being adopted into the family of God. We pray that we would give with joy. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.